I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Our scripture lessons for the morning come from Mark's gospel and then from Paul's letter to the Galatians. The first comes from Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. When we were children, we learned a nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We learned that as a story about an egg that fell off a wall. That's not what it's about. It's a truth about us, you and me. We came into the world with brokenness in our DNA. It's a moral and a spiritual brokenness. And you can trace it back to our first ancestors, Adam and Eve. And each of us has affirmed it in our own lives, our own sin heritage by thought, word, and deed. And there's no physician who can fix our brokenness. There's no politician who can fix it. There's no preacher who can fix it. But in the fullness of time, God provided a fix. God himself entered history as a tiny baby born to a peasant couple in a remote section of the Middle East. The baby's mother was a teenage virgin. The baby's father was the Holy Spirit. This God-man was named Jesus. He is the great physician and he is still in the business of fixing broken people he is the good news at the age of 30 Jesus embarked on a public ministry declaring the time has come the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news now 
The kingdom of God was not a new term to the Jews. They had been hoping, dreaming for years, for centuries, about the coming kingdom of God. And the prophets of the Old Testament had predicted that at some point God would enter history. His kingdom would begin. It would be led by a Messiah, a king, and the kingdom would last forever. Now, Jesus, when he came, claimed those titles, Messiah and King. But there was a problem because most of the Jews had the wrong idea about the kingdom and about the Messiah. They envisioned a conquering general who would lead an army to liberate Israel from the Roman domination. But that was not the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. He came to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that he would be a suffering servant Messiah who would die on a cross for the sins of the people and be resurrected in order to conquer sin and death forever and ever. When the baby of Bethlehem entered the world, the kingdom of God was launched. But it will not be completed until Jesus returns to planet earth in glory. And in the meantime, the kingdom of God advances one heart at a time. When any person repents of his or her sin and trusts in this Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that person becomes a new citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus becomes king in that person's heart and mind. The kingdom of God then advances one heart at a time. Recently, you know, we, we recognized the anniversary of 9-11. And all of us thought about those hijacked airplanes slamming into buildings. And we were reminded of heroes like Todd Beamer, who probably kept the Capitol building from being destroyed. And I was reminded of a writer named Harry Blamires who has used this hijacked airliner story as a metaphor, as an illustration of the good news of Jesus Christ. Mr. Blamires said, just imagine all the people of the world as passengers on a huge airliner. And God has arranged for this airliner to take off from his divine control tower. But somehow Satan got a boarding pass. And once that airliner had reached cruising altitude, Satan brandished his weapons and took over the plane, started terrorizing all the passengers and crew. And then that ill-fated plane just kept flying on through history, century after century, from one airport to another. And then in the year... 33 AD, that plane happened to be on the tarmac in Jerusalem, remote province of the Roman Empire ruled by Tiberius Caesar. And at that point, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, offered himself as a sole hostage to Satan in exchange for the freedom of all the passengers and crew on that airliner. And Satan jumped at the chance saying to himself, oh, if I can capture and kill the Son of God, 
I will own the world. But God intervened. Just after Satan had had inspired the Romans to kill Jesus, God transformed that death from a tragedy to a means of saving all mankind. Jesus became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then God raised him from the dead as a way of conquering sin and death and Satan. And that is the good news. The term good news is just another term for gospel. They're interchangeable. Gospel, good news. It refers to God's saving actions in history. St. Paul described the good news or the gospel this way. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive adoption to sonship. In this wonderful term, good news, good news, gospel, it reminds me of a precious diamond, whether it be your diamond ring or just a diamond all by itself. You know that if you hold that diamond up to the light, it sparkles. And if you ever notice that if you then turn it, you get a fresh new glimpse of its beauty with every turn. All right, let's do the same thing with the good news diamond. Let's hold it up, see its sparkle and its beauty, and turn it a few times to see some additional reflections of truth. Here's the first truth we see. No one is beyond the reach of the good news. You know what I love to say? No one is good enough to get to heaven without a Savior, and no one is so bad as to be beyond the reach of the Savior's love. Jesus said it this way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous folks who don't need to repent. Some years ago, I was leaving a sports stadium after a ball game. And uh, as I walked toward my car, I heard a commotion off here to the left. And I looked over there, and there were two men holding another man down on the ground, shouting at him angrily. There was a woman standing beside them, so I went over to her. I said, what's going on here? She said, we caught this guy in the act of breaking into our car. And we've called the cops. They're on the way. Um, but we're holding them till they get here. Now, if I had asked those two guys on top, would you be willing to die for that guy you were holding down? After expletive deleted, they would have said, no way, no way. I mean, he's not good enough hardly to kill, much less to die for. But oh, what a different calculus God has. Even knowing all of our sin, and goodness knows all of us have a record, knowing all of that, he's still willing to sacrifice his perfect, sinless son for people like you and me. And he didn't wait until we cleaned up our act. He didn't wait until we became respectable. St. Paul said it best, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you remember the last person that Jesus saved before he died for us? Yes, he was a thief on the cross. Yeah. Think about that thief. 
His whole life story was just a tale of sin, a sordid tale of uselessness. There was not one thing in his record that would make him deserving of salvation. Now, right before he died, he did make a kind of confession. He turned to the other thief who was dying adjacent to them and said, You know, you and I are getting what we deserve. We're guilty. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now that, friends, is the good news. While we were still sinners, Christ died for people like you and me. No one is good enough to get to heaven without a Savior, and no one is so bad as to be beyond the reach of the Savior's love. Let's hold up that good news diamond and give it another turn and see what we can see. It is this truth. We cannot earn God's love. It's a gift. Paul expressed it this way. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The difference between Christianity and all other religions is very simple to explain. It's the difference between two words, do and done. All other religions have a list of things you have to do in order to please God, to have inner peace, uh, to have eternal life, whatever the objective of that religion is. Things you have to do. A list of things. Oh, but Christianity changes it. From do to done. Our focus is on what Christ has done for us. Especially on the cross. Our salvation can never be earned. It's a gift. Let me use marriage as an example. Let's suppose that there's a husband who is somewhat unsure of his wife's love for him. So, he decides to go on a crusade. He's going to do all the things he can think of, good, helpful, kind things for her to earn her love. He's going to work at it every day. Now, I can imagine some of you wives thinking, you know, I could put up with that for a week or two. <laughs> but it would soon become a grind, an absolute grind. He would find himself on a painful treadmill. I mean, what's enough? How much do you have to do? There's no limit. That relationship would have a whole lot of strain and not much security. Let's change the scenario. Let's suppose that he can simply receive her love as a gift. A mysterious, marvelous gift that is unending, unconditional, unearned. And let's suppose that his proper response is just gratitude, awe, wonder. And then he would be moved to reciprocate, to give her back the same gift that he had received from her. Let me tell you, you can build a great marriage on that. Similarly, the love of God is for us is undeserved and unconditional. 
No list of good deeds is long enough to justify God's love for us. Jesus told us the only way to be saved, repent and believe the good news. Let's hold up that good news diamond one more time and turn it and see what we can see. It is this truth. God has revealed to us how this world will end. God gave a preview of the final chapter in the world's history. He gave it to a man named John who was exiled on the island of Patmos and John wrote it down in a book called Revelation. God declared it to John in the past tense as though it had already happened in these words. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever. Now, you and I are living in a world today that is scary in a lot of ways. I mean, if you read the newspaper headlines and watch TV news, this is a scary time. It looks like the forces of evil are running wild, that they have the momentum that things are going their way. And to envision this world then ending in a victory for Jesus seems so unlikely today. But I want you to remember that at the time that God gave this revelation to John on the island of Patmos, things were worse. The Roman Empire was in control of everything. And that meant Satan was in control. Because the emperors of the Roman Empire were incredibly immoral people. Just utterly pagan. One of them put rouge on the cheeks of a 10-year-old boy and married him. Many of these emperors were homicidal maniacs, uh, thinking that it was a sporting event, good sporting event, to bring Christians into the Colosseum and, and watch them being destroyed by wild animals. Uh, they thought it was a great civic service to crucify these Christians up and down the roadways of Rome and setting some of them on fire. Satan seemed to rule the entire world when Jesus made this, when God made this prediction. And yet, Despite all that, God sent word even then that when the world's final chapter is written, the kingdom of God will be victorious. Just when things are at their worst, the Bible says, God will intervene. And it could be tonight. Therefore, do not lose hope, Christian. Do not despair. God is still in control and here is what the final act of world history will look like. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is good news. Let me illustrate the good news with a story told to be by the late great Methodist preacher Bill Henson who was a dear friend of mine. And this relates to, to two of Bill's grandchildren, little girl, little boy, sister and brother, who they would normally spend two or three weeks every summer with uh, grandparents, Bill and Jean. And uh, the parents of these kids said to Bill and Jean, look, don't just spoil them now. We want you to do some training with them. Uh, teach them some things. So uh, Bill and Jean uh, decided to have daily chores for these kids uh, to have rules that they were supposed to live by. 
And every Saturday they gave them an allowance and the amount of the allowance depended on how they had behaved and done their chores during the, during the week. And on the side of the refrigerator there was a chart and it had the name of the grandson, the name of the granddaughter, and it had a space for each day. And they either got a plus or a minus for each day depending on if they had behaved and done their chores. Now the little grandson was having a tough week. He uh, had broken some of the rules. He had not done his chores. And so he was getting, as the days went by, he was getting some minuses. But the little granddaughter was the opposite. She was perfect. She could do no wrong. And she had nothing but pluses. And she was a sensitive, caring little girl. And she went to Grandmother Jean and said, um, she offered some excuses for her brother and Grandmother Jean said, honey, I appreciate your concern for your brother, but, you know, he's got to learn that good behavior brings rewards and bad behavior brings cost. Well, Saturday was payday. That's when the allowances went out. Late on Friday night, after everybody had gone to bed, that little girl went down to the kitchen and she erased his name in front of all those minuses and wrote her own name and erased her name in front of all those pluses and wrote his name. And you know something? Jesus did something similar for us. He took all of our minuses upon himself and covered us with his pluses. And that's the good news. Allow me to close this message with a personal testimony. I was captured by the good news of Jesus when I was 12 years old. Um, somehow at that time, I had picked up some faulty theology. I didn't get it at home or at church. I don't know where I learned it. But I believed that anything I did wrong before I was 12 years old was not my fault. <laughs> it was my parents' fault. But on my 12th birthday, some angel in heaven would pull my ledger, Bill Balknight, across the top. There were two columns, debits and credits. Every time I did something good, a mark would go here. Every time I did something bad, a mark would go there. And I believed that at the end of my life, they would total the columns. And if I scored 70 or above <laughs> on my lifetime morals test, I'd go to heaven. 69 or below, straight to hell. And they never gave you midterm grades. You never knew exactly where you stood. Now, I wasn't too worried because I was a church-going kid and I was raised by godly parents. However, I knew I had said some bad words. I had told some lies. Uh, I had been unkind to some people. But I really figured that I could score somewhere in the 70s and slide on in. Long about that time, I was invited to a, a revival service in a little country church in York County. And I went primarily because I knew my friend Dan Smith would be there, and we would sit on the back row and whisper about whatever 12-year-olds whisper about. I did not plan to listen, but there were some surprises there. One, the guest preacher was a college student. That surprised me. Wofford College senior named Phil Jones. 
But what really shocked me was, it was as if preacher Phil had read my mind because in his sermon he said, if anybody hopes to get to heaven by scoring 70 or above on your morals test, you're in bad shape because that's not a passing grade with God. Neither is 80. Neither is 90, he said. Neither is 99. And then he quoted Jesus. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Ooh, I felt lower than a whale's belly. I just sort of slid down into that pew. And I thought to myself, I am in worse shape than I thought. And then Preacher Phil said, when God saw there was no way we could measure up to his standards, he loved us so much that he sent his perfect son into this world and at the age of 33, he voluntarily suffered and died on a cross to pay the penalty for all of our sin. He was the only one great enough, good enough, loving enough to do it. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead and put out the best news the world has ever heard, that if anybody will just admit I am a sinner... And I believe that when that Jesus died on that cross, he did it for me personally. And I'm so grateful I invite the living Christ to be the leader, the Lord of my life. Phil said, if anybody believes that in his heart, that person's sins, past, present, future, are forgiven. That person's place in heaven is reserved and guaranteed. And the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that person's heart and mind and begins to make a new person out of him week by week, month by month, year by year. And then Pastor Phil said, if anybody wants to say yes to that offer, come down here to this altar. Off I went. And Dan Smith was with me. Yeah. That night in that little country church in York County, I bumped into the grace of God and said yes I was captured by the good news and it has been transforming my life ever since and I said a prayer just today that some people here this morning will be captured or recaptured by the good news and to God be the glory now it's time for prayer but prior to the prayer I'm going to ask you to bow your head and listen. I'm going to make three statements of faith. And after each one, I'm going to hesitate a few moments to allow you to whisper to God if you choose to. Yes, Lord, I believe that. Yes, Lord, I believe that. Please bow. First, Lord, I am a sinner who deserves nothing but your judgment. Secondly, my name is written on that cross where Jesus died. He did it for me. And third, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, your good news is almost too wonderful for us to imagine. Though we deserve nothing, you have given your very best for us. We bow in gratitude before your throne of mercy. 
Amen. Now let us prepare our hearts for Holy Communion. Well, churches, we've already mentioned a few different times this morning. Today is World Communion Sunday. And a lot of times in the church, it's easy to uh, have a very local mindset. But today is a wonderful opportunity for us to take communion, not just alongside one another here in town locally, um, but alongside our brothers and sisters all over the world. You see, the gospel that Jesus Christ uh, gave us, his story alone, it's, it's a global gospel. It's one that covers all corners of the entire earth, and that's his command to us. And so this morning, as we're taking communion, I pray that we would have a global focus on what the significance behind this actually is. Christ our Lord invites us to his table, all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory Glory to God. God. Amen. Amen. On the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. Until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet, Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen.